This episode is sponsored by a patron of the nonprofit Sound Potential. Sound Potential engages the power of music to build understanding and empathy for humanitarian issues around the world. Using music as a foundation, their projects focus on therapeutic healing for individuals and communities, including products, applications, music therapy sessions, and community interventions, as well as raising awareness and education related to humanitarian issues through performances, videos, recordings, and other programming. Visit soundpotential.org. On this episode, we have Itai Shapira. Itai was born in the U.S. but grew up in Israel. He had the opportunity to perform as a musician for visiting dignitaries to Israel, including Milan Kundera and Edward Teller. At the age of 15, he came back to the U.S. with his family to study at Juilliard with a focus on violin. He earned his bachelor's and master's degrees by the time he was 23. Atai made his debut performance at Carnegie Hall in the year 2003. He has worked with a favorite record label publishing 20-plus recordings. Atai is also a composer of original works and finds it a compelling form of creative expression. Many of his compositions have a literary affiliation, including a work entitled The Old Man and the Sea, as an homage to Hemingway post the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. He's also developed an original work in conjunction with author Salman Rushdie and his novel Midnight's Children. Atai is passionate about exploring the therapeutic nature of music and its ability to heal, born of personal experience, via his nonprofit Sound Potential and a collaboration with the Weill School of Medicine at Cornell. Itai, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, it's a pleasure. No, it's really great to have you. Um, uh, I love speaking with musicians. I love conversing with musicians. Um, I, I just um, People who dedicate their life to music are so inspiring for me. Music has meant uh, so much to me in, in, in my existence, and uh, uh, oftentimes um, it's been solace. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, sometimes when it's difficult to come up with the words for emotions, um, the music does the talking. And uh, it's, it's, uh, so it, it's a salve for sure. And so I'm always in just high admiration for those that dedicate their life to, to the craft. Um, I always like to start from the beginning in these conversations. So I understand you were born in Rochester, New York. Yes, I was. But yeah. uh, as a young boy, you uh, went to Israel and that's where you mostly grew up. That's right. Yeah, I, um, uh, my father was getting his PhD at the University of Rochester. And that's where I was born. And then um, um, my parents moved back to Israel when I was three. Okay. And uh, I basically grew up there until I was 15 um, and then came to Julia pre-college. Wow. Uh, the idea was to come for one year okay. um, and I stayed, well, until today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A few decades later, yeah. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. So um, which uh, city in Israel were you based? Um, I grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, okay. And do you have siblings, Utai? I do. Um, I have a sister who lives in uh, Tel Aviv. Okay. Is she older than you or younger? She's more mature than I am, but she's younger than I am. <laughs> I hope she listens to this episode because she'll be happy to, to hear you say that. <laughs> Quite a compliment. Um, what uh, was the area of your father's study? What was his um, field? Uh, my, my father's a business professor. 
Ah, okay. So he was studying, uh, doing uh, his doctorate was in economics or business or? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, are there, do you come from a lineage of uh, musicians or, or artists, your mom perhaps, or members of the family? Um, my, my aunt was a folk singer. Oh, okay. Um, and um, I, I do come from mainly from a family of music lovers. Okay. Uh, but, but we did not have a lot of uh, uh, professional musicians in the family. Right. Um, uh, but there was always music in the house. Right, right. Well, I, I can identify with uh, music lovers. Um, I attempted some instruments in my time, but it never really went anywhere. So decided that uh, audience member was the uh, the best position for me. <laughs> and and I, I think it's it's actually, I'm, I'm learning um, or re being reminded of the last few months that audience members are extremely important. <laughs> That's appreciated. Um, when uh, you said you were in a household that was full of music, um, when did you first have the inclination of uh, this is my calling in life? I will be a violinist. Well, um, when I was five, uh, my family spent um, a few months in, in Pittsburgh. Okay. And, uh, and I had a friend in Cairngarden who played the violin and I loved the sound and I really wanted to play and I asked my parents to play and they said, uh, no, um, uh, if you want to play an instrument, you have to play the piano. Um, I think they were concerned, you know, um, uh, a beginner on violin usually sounds worse <laughs> than the piano. It can be quite painful. Um, so I argued for three years and eventually after three years, they said, okay, you take one violin lesson and one piano lesson. Okay. And, um, it was very clear to me that um, I was just more attracted to the sound of the violin. Yeah. Um, I um, I looked like I was um, six until I was uh, twelve. <laughs> uh, so so uh, quite early on, I was um, um, you know anytime sort of a well-known personality came to Israel, I would I would sort of play in the whatever ceremony or public meeting. So you know I played for. Um, Milan Kundera when I was a very uh, oh my goodness uh, Edward Teller a bunch of people of course I was too young to appreciate who they were um, but I'd say it wasn't until I was twelve and I I switched to uh, my main teacher um, who taught um, Shmuel Ashkenazi Pinkas Zuckerman Shlomo Mintz Hagai Shaham and you know I, Ilona I, Ferrer Ilona Ferrer yeah. yeah so I played for her when I was twelve and she said okay you have to decide today uh by the end of our meeting if you want to be a professional violinist and if you do you have to start practicing at least four hours every day and if you don't that's absolutely fine you just go to someone else um and at that point there was no um there was no question in my mind um and uh you know she really changed my life i mean i, I sort of feel very fortunate to have um, studied with her and been in her, pres her presence um until she passed away when i was 15 and then i came yeah. to Julie. Ah, okay. So that was correlated. I know that she had yeah. passed in 88. And so that's when you came to, to Juilliard. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, what an exquisite mentor to have. And uh, her biography is, is stunning. She survived being in an internment camp, escaped, and uh, became a part of the resistance, the partisan movement. And uh, she's of yeah. Bulgarian origin. Yes, she was, yeah. uh, she was an incredible woman. And I'm actually... Um, um, you know, uh, Corona permitting, uh, I will be performing 
my double concerto uh, Magyar. in Budapest in March, uh, where she at the Franz Liszt Academy where she studies. So that'll I'm I'm really lo looking forward to that, and you know, finger crossed that it can still happen. Well, hopefully, it's just a matter of rescheduling if it can't happen in March. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. What a brilliant uh, homage to uh, to play, and I wondered if that work Magyar was was uh, in homage to her. It was an homage to her. Uh, it, it was an homage um, to uh, to her um, in a sense of people who came from um, a very um, different and difficult background. Um, I call it paying forward mm. um, and, and dedicated their lives in a new context to helping other people. Wow. So um, it was written in her memory um, and it was also um, dedicated to um, Harvey and Connie Kruger who commissioned it. Um, and they have done the same for uh, business relations between um, Israel and the United States. Wow. Um, they, they really started a, um, uh, uh, they supported the, the Tel Aviv University, the Jerusalem University. So these are about people who um, really dedicated their values in investing in the young uh, generation. Um, and um, the other violin part was written for Haggai Shaham, uh, with whom I started a foundation bearing their name. And, you know, he does the same for young artists today. That's really great. And so the foundation is based in Jerusalem? The foundation is based uh, uh, in, we, we have activities all over Israel. And uh, we, we mainly focus on two, uh, two things. One is um, uh, teaching uh, very young performers to become teachers for young children. Mm. And we actually um, use um, a Finnish model of education for that. Okay. And then uh, when, they, when they get older, uh, we pick uh, a very select few who we feel are gonna have international careers and we help them with networkings and, and whatever holes uh, they have to meet in, in reality at the time. Uh, so, you know, one of our uh, alumni um, it's a bit formal to call that name, but one of them is uh, Netanel uh, Dreiblet, who is not only a soloist, a concert master, but he's, he, he's now very active in the um, Annapolis Youth Academy, so teaching a young generation. And another is um, Itamar Zorman, who was a prize winner in the Tchaikovsky International Competition and has a very um, successful career. So uh, we try to help them in ways that... Um, you know, institutions and sort of formal teaching uh, do not. So we give them uh, very extensive kind of boot camps before big concerts and recordings and, and stuff like that. No, oh, that's brilliant. Um, in the, the boot camp, it feels like it's uh, more than just practice sessions. It also feels like there's this uh, mental conditioning aspect of it, would you say? It's this mentoring or guidance that you're providing. Um, Yes, I mean, you know, um, uh, I, I would never dare to try to replace, um, you know, the people who've been influential in my life and, you know, Feher being one of them, but a lot of her teaching, um, I mean, part of the, her, her brilliance uh, was she knew how to communicate to very young children um, and, and really sort of um, develop um, uh, resilience and preparedness. Um, you know, and, and sort of a responsibility um, and all that helps um, in situations under pressure, yeah. you know, on and off stage, I would say.
Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, even how you described her offer to you, um, she gave you a lot of agency in the sense that you could make the decision yourself, but here are my requirements. Um, you tell me if you are up for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, again, that's, that's, that's very clever. Um, coming back to the, the early part of, um, of your life, I mean, what was it like at 15 coming to Juilliard? Did your, would your parents come with you or were you staying with Yes. Um, my, um, we, we came as a, as a family. My dad um, started a sabbatical at NYU. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was convinced that, you know, we were coming for just one year. Um, and uh, I mean, I really liked the studies. Um, and then um, at that point, um, my sister got to a very good high school in Jerusalem, and they told her, we're not going to wait for you. So my mom and sister went back, mm-hmm. and we thought we would join at the end of the year. And then, um, at, as life happens, um, I received a lot of uh, uh, offers for concerts, and everyone around me told me, nobody's going to wait for you. You can't just sort of yeah. go back. And um, and it just so, so happened that um, my father and I stayed. My father still commutes. Um, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, from, from Israel to uh, to New York, or from New York to Israel, rather. Um, but um, back to your question, I um, I actually really liked uh, moving to New York. Um, I think I had an easier time than a lot of Israelis who did because um, I I had um, a little bit of a preview. Um, I went to the Aspen. Uh, music festival when I was younger to, um, and study with Dorothy DeLay, who who was my major teacher, right. uh, Juilliard, and um, also her assistant teacher, Naoko Tanaka. Um, and I, I studied with him through the end of my bachelor's. And then for my master's, I studied with uh, Robert Mann. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so like uh, a number of years of uh, study there. Um, how old were you when you completed your master's? You're very young when we started, so yeah. Uh, 23. Amazing. Very young. Yeah. Um, when did you begin um, your own compositions? Um, you know, it's, it, um, it was a very, uh, let's say, uh, gradual yet sudden uh, uh, process. So <laughs> I, um, you know, for, for uh, most of my uh, career, um, in my 20s, I, I performed, I toured playing standard repertoire. And um, I did premiere uh, pieces by Luciano Berrio uh, when I was 12, um, worked with a couple composers, but you know, um, I never thought I would, um, uh, that, n- that new music would be a big part of my life. And then I, um, I was doing a lot of recording. Right. And I've recorded some standard repertoire, but it was that, that stage in the industry where um, the label said, okay, we need original music, and they teamed me up with composers. And I really um, not only enjoyed working with them, but collaborated with them. So I, um, uh, I was not shy um, about changing things or making suggestions when I didn't like it. And, you know, only after studying their scores very, very carefully. So right. it became very collaborative. Nice. And I was introduced to a lot of different aspects of music. So I would write, I'd say my cadenzas, for example, but not my original works. I, I didn't write my first uh, sort of original piece until I was, uh, until 2000. Well, I started sketching it in 2005. I did not know that it was going to be my full composition. It ended up being 
an actual composition uh, in 2000, uh, late 2007. Gotcha. So about 10 years after you finished your, your studies, you began sketching, as you said. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, in uh, 2003, you had your debut at uh, Carnegie Hall with the Orchestra of St. Luke's, and it was a violin concerto by Shulamit. Am I pronouncing this right, Ron? Yeah, Shulamit Ron. Uh, Shulamit Ron is an incredible lady. Um, she was, um, I believe, she was a Pulitzer Prize uh, winner, and she was a Daniel Barenboim's composer in residence in Chicago in the 90s. And um, actually working with her was, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, very memorable to this day uh, because she, she, started the comp she started composing uh, and right when she started, um, her mother became very ill. Okay. And then she, she stopped. Hmm. Uh, and um, she, she said that, um, she didn't know if she can finish. And uh, at that point, we were only speaking on the phone. And uh, we developed a rapport. And I told, and I, you know, I, I was very understanding, but I kept trying to encourage her. And, uh, and eventually, the competition became, um, uh, there were a few melodies which I found just um, so both innocent and haunting. And I asked her, what is this about? And at first, she was reluctant to tell me. And later on, um, she said that um, she, she was worried that she might not um, uh, that her mother might not be alive for the premiere of the concert, and she couldn't bear that thought. And it stirred all these emotions in her. Uh, luckily, her mother did come to the concert. She made it. Uh, and uh, it was the first time that I, I realized just, um, you know, how much um, what goes on in a person's life, how much it affects their composition. I mean, it seems so obvious to say, but being that most of the composers I was working with, um, I did not have the option of speaking with, um, yeah. it gave me a, a whole new perspective. Sure, no, that makes complete <laughs> sense. And we're going to come back to that theme because I know that's influencing um, your activities currently and, and the things that you're doing. Um, but coming back to this uh, composition that you sketched uh, in 05 and then ultimately released in 07, what was the title of it? Um, it's called Concerto Latino. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, that came up in my uh, my research. Um, oh, this must be off a little bit because it, it uh, or maybe you, you had another recording of it in 2011? I did record it in 2011 um, with my um, um, friend and colleague, Krzysztof Kolczewski, the conductor um, and violist, and the London Sayonata uh, for Champs Hill Records. Yeah. Okay. Right, for whom you've done a few uh, recordings. Yes, they have been and remain um, incredible to me. I mean, they, they've, uh, they've released all my compositions. And um, the, uh, the label was mainly started by um, uh, David Bowman, who, who was my mentor. Uh, he passed away very recently, but he was, again, an incredible influence in my life. Uh, um, and Chris Craker who um, was very active with, at the time, with um, uh, Sony and various uh, big labels. And the idea was to start a, um, a label. Um, a lot of the people working a little bit at the time were, were working for major labels, and this was sort of um, a pet project. Uh, but it really grew. I mean, the, the, they were very selective in terms of who they feature and how they feature them. And, uh, you know, I, I got to know um, a young producer 
named Alexander Van Ingen. I think that was one of his first sessions, um, who went on to, um, to, be, to become an executive producer for DECA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we're all, we all remain like a, a family, yeah. uh, even if the record business is you know, changing uh, daily. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. The nature of that uh, business keeps uh, molding uh, and altering. Um, and I, I think I read you've had about uh, 20 different uh, recordings across your career thus far. Something like that, yeah. yeah Something. That's, that's fantastic. Um, we'll come back to, to some of the ones that uh, you've done, but I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, Daniel Barenboim, and of course he performed that work by uh, Shulamit Ron that you had debuted. Um, have you personally worked with him? You know, it's funny, I haven't. I mean, um, um, I received a very um, unexpected call from the Chicago Symphony. Um, the premiere was at Carnegie Hall, um, and the contract said that the, the premiere has to be there. We cannot premiere it anywhere else. Uh, so we were not allowed to have um, a concert to try. And, um, you know, the conductor and I, it was both our debuts. We were, we thought, okay, what can we do to make sure that we are as prepared as possible? So the conductor, uh, Charles Hazelwood, scheduled a, um, he called it a studio reading in London. And we rehearsed it. We rehearsed it. We, um, there were sort of a few people were invited and asked some questions. And then we ran it through. Hmm. Um, it was taped for the BBC. They asked me to sign the release. Um, it was broadcast. And then um, the, um, I believe the administrative director um, or the artistic director of the Chicago Symphony at the time used to work with the BBC. He heard, heard the broadcast and he called me and he said, would you mind being on the same CD as Daniel Barenboim? Hey, <laughs> sure. Um, so then um, they, they bought the recording and it was released for Albany Records. So it's, it's essentially a live recording. Wonderful. Uh, you know, we, we had no idea it was going to end up like that. Right, right. Oh, that's so fascinating. Um, just being a classical music fan for so long, of course, I've uh, followed his career from, from young. Um, obviously, he's older than, than both of us, but uh, uh, I was a big admirer of his, um, I, I think they were married at the uh, for a period of time, uh, Jacqueline Dupre. Of course. Uh, yeah. Cellist, yeah. Yeah. Which unfortunately she had a very untimely demise. Um, and the, the world really lost a, a great light. Uh, just uh, her yeah. passion with which she played was, was, was phenomenal. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, coming back to some of your recordings. Um, I, I was, uh, uh, delighted to see the literary associations. Um, you've done a work, uh, The Old Man and the Sea. Yes. On, on Hemingway's short story. Tell us about that. Um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's sort of interesting for me because I was never um, an avid reader in school. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that... Um, you know, I, a lot of interests I took up after being a student. And when I'm interested in something, the best way for me to connect with it is um, through music. Um, I guess not very surprisingly. And um, the old man in the scene in particular, um, I, I premiered my first piece, Concerto Latino, uh, with the Key West Symphony in Florida. Okay. Uh, and they wanted me to, to come back and play another piece. And at that time, I didn't think I was going to write another piece. I thought, I just wrote one piece and it was all consuming and it was, um, 
um, a very personal experience for me, but I just, I didn't think I was going to do it again. And uh, the BP oil spill happened oh, yeah. at that point. Um, and um, they asked me to write something about it. And then I thought, well, I've never even gone fishing. Not once. And I thought, I have no business of doing that. But um, I befriended a family um, during my first tour with the orchestra. Because, you know, I, we spent about a week in Key West rehearsing. And they had to move as a result of the spill. And um, David Bowerman, my one of my main mentors, was a very avid uh, fisherman. So one day when I was walking in the street, all this sort of like hit me. And I thought, oh, I better read The Old Man in the Sea. Um, and of course, the book really, really grabbed me. Um, and, uh, you know, these sort of melodies kept coming and they just wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I've learned at that point when they keep coming and they keep coming back, um, I can't turn them off. The only way to turn them off, because they can come at the most inconvenient possible time. <laughs> uh, the only way to turn them, them off is to write them down. Uh, I don't write them down for a long time because if I feel I need to, uh, that I might forget them, it means they're not good enough. Wow. Love but I, when I do write them down, then they either lead to something or they don't. And in this case, uh, they did. Amazing. That's so brilliant. And was it a similar process for uh, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, which you also did a composition for? Um, yes, the process seems to be to become more and more convoluted every time I, I start on the project. Um, uh, when it came to Salman Rushdie's piece, um, I wanted to write a piece that um, has to do with tradition and independence. Mm. You know, kind of, you know, can they coexist? And so I thought, all right, um, I, I remember what the topic was about, and I read about two pages, and uh, um, I didn't quite understand what was going on in the first two pages. So I read third and fourth, and then I was just completely and absolutely hooked. Mm. Uh, I was I was so taken by the book, um, so I just started to sketch some melodies, and um, I uh, got to a point where um, I wanted to I just wanted to know some questions about the structure of the book. Um, so um, I was I was introduced to him, and I emailed him. Wow. Um, and we were going to meet, but then um, Hurricane Sandy hit. Wow. The meeting was canceled. Uh, and then um, I just kept sketching more and more. And then I met um, a very interesting visual artist uh, who, who um, Salman had one of his paintings. So he was very familiar with Salman's work. And we started speaking and turned out, turned out that the, his process of um, painting was very similar to the process of my composition. So his, <laughs> his name is Alexander uh, Klingsport. He's he's um, yeah. Swedish, um, and um, we uh, we started to work together. And uh, you know, I would play a melody for him, and he would paint, and then he would paint, and that would change my melody a little bit. And um, uh, the whole time, we, we we were very interested in um, you know, of course, in Hindu symbolism, uh, in uh, the idea of you know the message of the book. Um, um, refugees, orphans, PTSD, um, healing through storytelling. That, that became the main um, issue. So um, I ended up writing a concerto in collaboration with a visual artist. And um, when I finally did meet 
um, Salman Rushdie for the first time. I, I changed um, the order of mm. actually, um, I've written um, a movement that sort of continues after the life of the book. Wow. And um, I asked him a lot of questions about the characters of the book, and then I told him, um, you know, my concept, and uh, uh, he was extremely courteous and, you know, brilliant and interesting, but um, he said, oh, that's that's not a, what, what I was thinking. <laughs> I thought, oh, no. Uh, and then there was a brief pause, and he said, but I, now I understand exactly why why you're doing that. Wow. Uh, you're doing this because of this best, so I think it can work very well. And then we started to have a lot of very interesting conversation. It changed things again. So it was a very, very interesting and gratifying process, uh, which ended up being as a, a violin and clarinet concerto. Wonderful. Uh, with, uh, so it, it comes as a symphonic version. Mm -hmm. um, it comes as a version with um, Mr. Rushdie narrating um, and an um, animated version. And, um, you know, there's a lot more that we want to do with it, um, um, including um, you know, for both storytelling um, and therapeutical uh, elements, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I do with all my compositions at this point. That's fantastic. Um, I love that. And of course, uh, uh, Midnight's Children, when it first came out, which I think was around the time you migrated to, to New York for Juilliard. Um, one so, yeah, a little bit before, but, but not okay. far yeah. Uh, won the Booker Prize, which is yeah. one of the most prestigious yeah. awards in literature. And then several years ago, they ran another, uh, I guess, a, more of a survey, not really a contest, but they asked uh, of all the uh, titles awarded the Booker Prize, which was the most meaningful. So the Booker of all Bookers. And it was Midnight's Children that uh, won that honor. So it's been uh, twice uh, recognized as a, a seminal work. And of course, um, whoever's read Rushdie knows that uh, his brilliance comes through in his uh, composition and his work. And um, I've having to interact with a writer who will put so many ideas into one sentence and uh, <laughs> manage to make it work. <laughs> yes. That's what's yeah. brilliant about that. Um, You've also done uh, work in, in other media. You worked on the soundtrack of the film Daniel Pearl. Um, yeah, um, the, the journalist and the jihadi, yes. Right, right. And then uh, uh, The Runaway Bunny was a children's work that uh, you were involved with. That's right, yeah. I mean, that was an example of, um, I wrote the cadenza and um, I was very involved in developing um, the project. Um, but that was, uh, you know, it was sort of, starting right before I, I started composing uh, my own music. Right, right, okay. Um, you know, Ty, when we were talking about um, your interaction with Alexander on the Midnight's Children work, you used the term healing. Yes. And um, that I know that has become a very significant aspect and part of what you do and, and your life's mission at this point. Um, I'd love for you to share to the extent you're comfortable about uh, the experiences that you've had that you've shared with me before about the the attacks that you experienced and um, some of the work you're doing around healing from a music perspective um, as it relates to, to memory and so forth. Um, um, I'd love to. Um, I'd like to maybe just sort of start by, by going backwards. Um, and say that today, looking back, uh, what led uh, to my composing um, the, the specific events actually do not seem 
uh, significant mm, okay. is the process and the reaction uh, that's in me is. Um, and that's something that sort of um, uh, stays with me. Uh, uh, that said, um, in 2005, um, I was attacked by a gang. Um, and um, I was very lucky. Um, there were um, a series of attacks in the city that week, um, and I actually um, ended up finding out what happened to others. I, I was very lucky. I was um, in the hospital for only one night. Wow. Uh, um, and um, I, I had barely any memory of what had happened. Um, I had a, um, I did remember a very severe headache. <laughs> um, and uh, I was able to go on tour. Um, a few days later, I had to play the concerts with sunglasses. Oh, wow. A little cooler than usual, but um, I was able to... <laughs> Suits um, your personality. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Where were I, you at I, the time this happened? Were you coming back from rehearsal, or I was I was uh, walking by um, uh, Penn Station. Oh wow! Um, and um, it it took a very long time. Uh, well, well, the the process of composing was piecing together bits of, of memory because yeah. um, I had a uh, again a melody um, that came every time I had a. Uh, sort of a, a zap on my cheekbones for just literally only seconds at a time. But it happened quite frequently. I mean, every, uh, every few hours uh, for 18 months. Well, uh, at a certain point, it became very, very frustrating. Um, it didn't bother me. It didn't interfere with my life, but it was very bizarre. Uh, so at a certain point, I decided to write it down. And then I started to see, I mean, I remember seeing um, a vision of myself on ice. And I never go ice skating, so I couldn't figure out how that was. And then there was some, I heard some sounds and I realized there was um, literally the sounds of the, um, that I was hearing when I woke up uh, from the attack on the ground. And very slowly I started to piece, um, you know, the more I wrote, the more I remembered. And the more I remember, the more I wrote. Amazing. It was just sketches, but at that point I, uh, I had good relationships with many composers, so I said, okay, you know, I was very involved with um, orchestration suggestions and violinistic suggestions, so can you, can you help me now? So I sort of, that's how I got my informal uh, compositional education. Okay. And eventually it became a piece, what I thought was going to be my only piece. Um, and uh, when I premiered it, I did not want to share the story because I, I wanted the composition to stand on its own right. but it wasn't um, after that I realized that it was so um, um, helpful um, you know I did not have any nightmares I did not go through depression I did not and I didn't feel like I made a conscious effort to bypass this I just um, uh, and, and perhaps the most um, intriguing for me at the time was my headaches were cured when the composition was finished amazing uh, so I wanted to know why. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I started to read. Um, I started to read material about the brain um, and how the brain might work. Uh, and I started to reach out to some neuroscientists, and I had some ideas. And um, I started to give uh, lectures and presentations. Um, and it was very interesting uh, for me, and uh, it was great to speak to sort of first-class researchers and, and academics, but. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. Mm. I'm a 
acquisition. Um, so um, a, um, a very um, well-respected neuroscientist uh, who's the head of the um, NYU Emotional Brain Center, and he's written some revolutionary books, uh, Joseph Ledoux, connected me with um, the uh, Bronx Institute for Music and Neurological Function. Um, and I, I played, I was part of a music therapy session for um, uh, a group of people, one of which was recovering from a stroke. And she was screaming at the beginning of the session. And I played a little bit. And after 20 minutes, uh, she, she was barely able to speak. She was saying that when the sound stopped, the pain comes back. And then we did some rhythmic exercises and then she sort of, she kept, you know, she was in a wheelchair, her hand was clenched against her knee, sort of grabbing her knee. And she kept uttering the words joy and ambition over and over again. So um, I launched into a uh, sort of Celtic encore that I played, written by a um, composer friend, um, Dave Heath. And she started dancing in a chair. And at the end of the session, she was as clear-minded as could be. And she said that she knows that the pain might come back, but for now it's been uplifted. And it was a very um, moving experience for me. Um, and uh, they do incredible, they did incredible work at that um, institution. And um, in fact, um, I wanted to know, what is it about the, the music? You know, uh, in, in um, a lot of music therapy, traditionally, the therapist um, is trained to connect with the patient. Right. Of course, um, it's, uh, you know, a very, very um, demanding process to become a music therapist. Um, but for me, I wanted to know, okay, how, how do you compare one session to the next? How do you compare progress from the previous week if every time the compositions are different? So I started thinking about how I should develop um, a method and a consistent material, original material. Um, and sort of uh, uh, around the time I was thinking of um, uh, specific music uh, for medical purposes, I, I met, I was introduced to um, a colleague, um, a, um, a cultural anthropologist uh, who, who, who has since uh, become a, um, a teacher at NYU, and her name is Natasha Zaretsky. And she was very interested in what music can do for groups. Um, and uh, we, uh, we were involved uh, for a project I put together at Carnegie Hall. I wrote a piece commemorating um, uh, Theresienstadt, where uh, children uh, literally survived because they sang in an opera. Uh, so they survived because they sang in the opera and they were not, and most were not sent to Auschwitz as a result. But in interviewing some of them, they said that it is what kept them alive. Wow. So um, as I was working on these sort of two extremes, I realized that, um, I mean, of course, it's probably obvious uh, to you and uh, uh, many people, but I realized that um, uh, medical and societal conditions are connected. And of course, we see it now. Yeah. Uh, coronavirus is a virus it's a medical condition but it literally now um paralyzes uh, the entire world that's right yep. so then how do we deal with it so i started um to become interested in how how can i compose music 
and develop material that can help individuals and communities. So I came up with um, a format um, and I formed another organization called uh, Sound Potential. Um, I called it that because um, it's about the potential um, of sound, what sound can do for us, but also the potential of being sound, being of sound mind. Uh, so then we started to develop projects and each one of my composition um, is inspired by um, a major uh, historical and cultural event culture because I feel it's very important uh, for me to understand how different cultures, um, you know, uh, the combination of identity and empathy. Um, I learn a lot. I think we, we all can. Um, so the original therapy in mind is has to do with the main uh, population group in that book or movie or story, and then I integrate it. I integrate it um, so it could be relevant, hopefully for everyone. Fantastic. What year did you uh, launch Sound Potential? Two thousand sixteen. Okay. Brilliant. I mean, I was going to say um, the first thing um, that. Um, I started to do um, uh, is, is develop material for uh, the idea was for um, uh, uh, veterans with PTSD because the main character in Midnight Children is a veteran with PTSD who tried to piece together memories. So I, I spoke to some expert, experts, excuse me, um, and um, they gave me a lot of uh, very useful information of how to work and how to approach uh, uh, veterans. Um, the that which I developed is called Chun Yang. It's um, I did that with um, a uh, philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, a Korean American philosopher named uh, Lorraine Park, and um, that is um, it's a sort of very very famous uh, Korean tale about um, um the long and the short. I mean, it's a love story. It's like the Korean Romeo and Juliet. But okay. the main character in the in the book, a woman, um, she endured violence and abuse and sort of um, rose above it um, and eventually um, uh, her husband who was away reunited he became the next leader of Korea and and by working together um, Korea uh, prospered so for that I developed music for women uh, recovering from violence and abuse um, that is sort of the specific therapy but it also has to do with um, rebuilding self-respect mm. uh, interestingly enough as i was researching the the particular musical genre genre we should call it panzori i realized that um there's a lot of connection um the rhythm the modes and the subject matter with the blues okay and celtic music well wow. so triplets and the pentatonic modes sure um and there are sections in it which I wrote um, at the time. The piece was premiered last year at the New Hampshire Music Festival. Well, there are specific sections that are dedicated, um, just very interesting enough, to Black Lives Matter. Wow. So what I what I learned um, as I was writing more and more of these pieces is that no um, medical or societal problem uh, is fully addressed um, until it's, it addresses the yes, the specific uh, population that is that suffers, but until uh, people outside that group are aware and are involved. Yeah. So I write a concerto, but then I, I turn it into very simple songs. 
Mm. Um, the idea is that um, the patients and the user can sing them. And then very slowly, um, I, I sort of go from um, very easy to a little more demanding. Um, I develop tasks with the practitioners. So it can involve um, humming, clapping, moving. Um, if it's speech therapy, it's pronunciation. I mean, lots of different pain management. Right. But then later on, I actually write chorales. Okay. So we can sing it with um, other patients, um, their families. And um, of course, now I'm thinking of um, uh, virtually bigger groups. Right. right? So, so, I, so I build it in a specific way. Okay. Oh, superb. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you've also been doing, uh, in, in a related fashion, uh, consulting for the Weill Cornell Music and Medicine Program. Yes, uh, they, um, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful uh, that when I sort of took interest, um, instead of, uh, originally it was, it was quote-unquote just music and brain, mm. uh, they, uh, I've been speaking to some of their um, experts and they started a music and medicine program. And interestingly enough, when they did, they got five times more applicants. Mm. So correlation between um, wow. uh, doctors and music. So a lot of their students, um, their medical students, uh, went to Juilliard and Curtis and decided to become doctors. Um, they have a uh, wonderful orchestra and chorus. Um, and um, I've played a few concerts, I've given a few lectures, and then, you know, then later on, I, I wanted to see how music can be used um, as a therapeutic tool. Mm. And that's sort of the journey that I had started at the time. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. That's amazing. Um, general question. Um, you've written seven double concertos. Um, and so uh, I'm just curious about, uh, you know, the concerto as a favored form of expression. Is there something to it that draws you to that? Or is that naturally how the compositions come to you? Well, um, most of my work uh, as an adult has been playing concertos. Mm. Uh, so it was usually started with the journey of my wanting to you know, to find something out, you know, so essentially kind of write it uh, for myself. Um, I've always been very attracted to the um, uh, complex and uh, plethora of orchestral sounds. Um, uh, later on, sort of from a more scientific point of view, um, the overtones and what that means, but also just texture and, and you know, these usually respond to sort of uh, big stories and monumental events. So I felt an orchestra would be fitting. Um, the, other instrument usually represents um, another culture or a conflict. Uh, in my dream world, meaning my compositions, usually within uh, anywhere between 25 minutes and how uh, my longest composition of 65 minutes, um, it's resolved. So at least in my dream world, um, I, I want to see how they can be integrated. You know, right. you sort of take two different elements and see how they're integrated. Uh, that said, um, more recently, um, I've composed a cycle of um, duets, uh, and it comes, you know, uh, I've, I've literally just handed in um, some duets for the um, Tachiuchi Music Center in California. Um, a uh, friend, violinist, and conductor named Florian Pavlescu um, is a director. And 
I, I sort of devised a lesson plan with rehearsal techniques and each duo is uh, inspired by a different country uh, where the students cannot go to right now. So I thought it'd be nice for them to sort of have a, a, a little trip. So it comes with uh, notes about the cultures. Um, and, you know, one of them, for example, has to do with uh, an orchestral project I'm developing and it's about um, the indigenous culture. And I feel, you know, I'm coming back to it now because uh, I feel that um, we all have a lot to learn uh, by sort of um, respecting nature, respecting the environment and cultures who uh, prioritize that. Yeah, nice. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, I read that you play, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Guadagnini? Yes, you are pronouncing it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which is uh, a master craftsman. I mean, they have the same ilk as uh, Stradivari. Uh, how long have you been, when did you get uh, that violin? I got that violin in um, 1996. Oh, right when you graduated. Uh, 19, uh, yes, uh, technically actually even before I, just before I graduated, um, I got it through a, um, the best accident of my life. Oh. Um, I uh, was interviewed for a one-year position at the Royal College of London. Okay. And I couldn't get there on time because I had a concert. So they rescheduled the interview and they interviewed me. And at that point, uh, they'd run out of funds. Oh, dear. So they, they didn't, we didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, this is when email was just starting. So I remember I got a, a letter in snail mail saying that they found an anonymous donor for me. Will I write him a thank you note? Of course, you know, at that point I had a couple of CDs. I sent a couple of CDs and thank you note. And, uh, a few months later, I met uh, this anonymous donor, um, and he didn't tell me who he was. Um, he was a very modest man who, who was, um, he introduced himself as a farmer, uh, but, but uh, he was also um, a magistrate. Okay. Uh, he started a nationwide program uh, for the uh, rehabilitation of ex-cons in England. Um, so wow. he started a one-year position at the Royal College. Uh, which then became, a, um, I was an affiliate of the Royal College, which was sort of a transition year between being a student and a teacher. And I represented the school, I played fundraising concerts for them. So um, he uh, bought a Guadagnini for me, wow. which then I bought from him. Okay. Uh, and and he, he became um, an incredible mentor. He's the person who founded Champs Hill. He became a mentor to hundreds of musicians. That's fantastic. Uh, and and uh, it, it done, he's done incredible things for his community. And, you know, to this day, every day I learn about more and more things he did, including started a company for green energy. Huh. Um, and he didn't reveal to me that he was a composer himself. <laughs> uh, years yeah, after. He said, I got he's modest. <laughs> exactly. So, he was in, so had I auditioned on time, I wouldn't have met this person who wow. also really... Um, changed my life. That's really something you tie. You know, I often reflect that um, there's an order um, to, to things happening. We just can't, it's just not, it just hasn't revealed itself to us yet. And so- It hasn't revealed itself to us yet. And uh, I mean, one thing I'm being reminded of, and, and you know, this is why, you know, I'm also investing my time in developing a new project with uh, pianist um, Constanza Beckman. Um, 
the order does not reveal itself, but we have to be prepared to react to it. Yes. You know, so, so um, we're developing a project uh, together called um, uh, Resilience Through Music, right? Mm -hmm. So how, you know, what are the habits that one develops every day that helps them react to a situation in which the order does not reveal itself? Mm. You know, how are we prepared to respond? Wow. What do we make of it? Right. Uh, that's brilliant. I wish you uh, well on that. That's like, that sounds like an exciting project. So uh, true to life, very much so. Um, I'd love to highlight that uh, in 2018, uh, the New York Times uh, honored you uh, by describing you as an Israeli dynamo with a flourishing solo violin career. I think that's uh, it's an apt way to to describe. But what I, I'm really impressed with, uh, Itai, is how you don't really have any boundaries to the things that you work on and that you you do. It's it's um, you you explore new territory, new areas. Um, as as you talked about with your double uh, concertos, you you know the other instrument represents culture um, and and just all that you've expressed here, just your very wide um, view of the world um, is really uh, phenomenal and, and, and heartwarming. Oh, and, thank you so much. Uh, thank well, you. I mean, I, I should, um, uh, I think you, you make me sound uh, <laughs> better than I am. No, I uh, deserve it, I, by all means. <laughs> I, I should know that, um, you know, what this means really is in the last few years I decided um, what to prioritize as, as a musician mm. and on what I feel I have to contribute. And, you know, what it also means is, you know, um, we can't do everything. So there's some things that I, um, you know, I wouldn't say I've quit, but some things that I don't focus on as a performer. You know, for, for example, I study uh, box music every day, sure. but I don't perform it. Uh, because I feel there are a lot of people who perform it beautifully. Mm. Uh, and when I feel I have something to add, I will. Yes. Uh, likewise, with a lot of composers, um, I've cut back a lot. I used to play a lot of chair music. I, I cut back on that. Uh, because um, what I do is so uh, demanding and consuming. And um, I only want to do it in the best way possible. Uh, so there's, there has been a shift. Um, and um, I feel very, um, very blessed uh, that I can focus on what I want. Um, and at the same time, uh, the month of March was a reminder that um, it's always good to have a mission and a plan. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but we never know, you know, we never know how things will develop. Yeah, the, the order hasn't revealed itself. That's right. The order hasn't <laughs> revealed itself. Correct. Yeah. So well said. Thank um, you very insightful uh, questions. That means a lot to me. Thank you for, for saying that, Itai. The order has not revealed itself, but, you know, what do we do, you know, in a very, very different landscape, uh, not just for music, for the world. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about that uh, a lot. And, and particular the the um, the big shift to um, the virtual. Yes, right. 
Um, Please, yeah, let's do this. All right. Well, I'd be very curious to to get your perspective, but um, um, you know, one thing I've been I've been taking um, interest in, you know, it's it's preliminary interest, but um, I've been really drawn to it, and that that is a uh, VR. Yeah. Right. Um, and um, part of what interests me in it. Um, in addition to the fact that it's obviously uh, growing and growing and becoming more and more um, uh, sort of uh, a fixture, an evolving fixture within the medical community uh, before before Corona, um, is that um, I think that um, if VR is done in a good way, um, it's a fascinating mix of science and the arts. Yes, right. Um, and I think that if um, if it's developed and directed in a certain way, uh, it, it can do incredible things. Um, I think of it as um, uh, a dream, uh, a dream that can be directed. You know, so so so, so one thing I've been thinking of, um, about a lot is um, first the, the idea of um, of storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, human humans need to tell and listen to stories. Yeah process what's going on around them and inside them um, so I, I very much hope to develop uh, my compositions um, into this sort of new new medium and at the same time do it in a very uh, directed way and offer it for very specific purposes you know where we um, and you know the medical community the educational community academics can see all right how does the sound enhance the visual material? Um, you know, what would it be like if at moments the focus is the visual, others it's the sound? Um, I just think it's it's so important. And I think it's so important that it's um, uh, studied and done um, responsibly. Um, and I, I think the potential is enormous. I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on that? And thank you for inviting me to share and appreciate how you've uh, introduced the, the topic. Very, uh, very thoughtful, Itai. Um, as I think about film and I think about how music plays its role in film, oftentimes you have um, a visual image or a sequence of images, um, a scene um, where only music can carry the emotional narrative. Words won't do it justice. Images won't do it justice, but to express what's happening inside a character or, or, or in that moment, the emotional uh, high point can only be, be described in, in music. So I'm a firm believer in music being a critical part of storytelling. When we think about VR, the beauty of VR is its immersive quality. And yes, so, exactly, that's the word I was looking for. There, there's, you know, with regular, um, uh, you know, 2D interaction, there's always other distractions going on. If you're in a movie theater, then somebody is talking on their cell phone, maybe, or texting, popcorn, or other right. activity that's going on. There, there's just a distraction. Or even if you're at home, you know, your phone rings, you're, you're out of it. When you're in a VR headset experience, you're completely immersed in it. And so... I think music is critical to that experience because visual stimulation cannot carry it in its entirety. Um, 
the other area where I find, I feel it could be very intriguing is with new composition and being exposed to it, the immersive aspect forces you to be present with that piece. And, and what I mean by that is oftentimes if we're exploring a new composition, if we're listening to it through our computers or our phones, um, again, the, the, the distraction element is so prominent. Um, and, and I guess I'm trying to make a distinction between a new composition versus a piece we're familiar with. Because if we're familiar with it, then our mind is already engaged and, and there's this anticipation aspect, which is actually I, one of the pure joys of listening to, to music and hearing the same piece. Um, it's, it's, it's the anticipation of what's about to come. Yes. Um, and, it, and it's also interpretation to see how your interpretation of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto will be different than Isaac Stern's, uh, as an example. And there's beauty to that because if you really go deep and you understand the experiences of that uh, people have been through and what they've gone through, it, uh, it really brings it to life in a phenomenal way. So I, 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 and maybe this is really just projection and I'm talking from a very personal place, but I look forward to experiencing new compositions in VR because I will be totally immersed in it. It'll be as if I'm in the concert hall at the debut. And because there's, there's nothing, and, and, and even fewer distractions than that. Um, I can just be present with it. Um, and I see that as really the, the beauty of impossibility of, of VR. Um, I think that's a very, very um, exciting way, way to put it. And um, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned, um, immersive. Mm. I think especially uh, with the world now, yeah. the idea of immersive, um, and, and I'll just add a few other um, quick words, um, uh, attention span, concentration. You know, I think, I think there needs to be, what I, when I said um, responsibility, I think that, um, you know, um, as I, I hope to develop uh, these projects. Um, I also, I'm, I'm understanding more and more that the audience, coming back to the audience, um, you know, uh, music and the arts, uh, I've always thought of them as, I was not brought, brought up religiously, but I always thought of them as uh, prayers yeah. that I share with others, but now I realize it's, it's a communion, it's a joint responsibility. Right. So I think um, as technology makes it easier and easier for people to experience things, uh, we should also be very mindful of the fact that um, they, uh, we should, we should uh, um, develop and demand engagement from the user, from the patient. So they, they really have their, um, their share in it. Um, and this way, attention span, anticipation, learning, um, all these um, are absolutely necessary for healing. You know, healing, yes, there are specific problems. Healing is not just for the sick. Right. Healing is for everyone. Wellness is, is for everyone. So, um, you know, with the basic uh, starting point that, um, you know, we hear up to 10 times faster than we see uh, neurobiologically. We're not aware of it, but, we, but and just the way we're wired. Mm. Um, you know, combining these things, I, I, I really think... Um, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I think very, very exciting. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I look forward to enjoying your new compositions in that format. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. Um, it's a it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Always, every conversation we have is just really such a joy. Um, and um, I look forward to uh, continuing these conversations. And, and of course, you know, we've talked about a number of ways in which we can collaborate. Uh, and every time I speak to you, I just, uh, I look forward to it more and more. Me too. Likewise. Thank you. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.